Hello. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our morning coffee time for Monday, August the 3rd. And today uh, we get to welcome Ajahn Sona back to field some questions on the jhanas. His uh, sixth talk in the series, sixth and final talk in the uh, jhana retreat series, premiered yesterday at one o'clock. And I hope everyone had a chance to see that. Beautiful. It was like a double feature, Ajahn. Um, normally, your talks are something like 30, 35 minutes, and that was a double feature. Yes. Always end on a high note. <laughs> Always end on a high note. So, all right. Well, before we start going with questions, can everybody see and hear Ajahn okay? I want to say hello to everyone, Ajahn. Hello, everyone. We are here at Birkin with our regular cast of characters, Piyadasi, Bodhipala, Kush, and Metta, and yours truly. <laughs> hmm. Very good. So the theme, uh, the theme of the last talk was uh, largely sort of Ajahn's approach to breath meditation and as that relates to the jhana. So I'll be looking in particular for questions that focus in on that and, of course, on the, the subject of the jhanas in particular. And in the last couple of times we did this, we had so many questions that um, really will give preferential treatment to those. So and perhaps we can have Ajahn back uh, some other time to take uh, so other questions. People say we look fuzzy, Ajahn. I am fuzzy. So I think I think our connection. I feel unfocused as good today. As it has been. <laughs> I feel unfocused. <laughs> I think our connection might not be quite as good as it's been the last couple weeks, but it seems good enough for what we have here. So I think we'll go ahead and um, maybe start with the first question. You referenced a couple books, Ajahn. So I thought maybe we take this. First question from Max Green in Australia. First off, thanks for answering my question last week so helpfully. What suttas and books do you recommend for essential or further study on the jhanas and breathing meditation? Well, I'm a little uh, reluctant to recommend any books on the jhana except for the suttas. And the reason why is, and this is why I actually made a six-part series on the jhanas, because a lot of the information is somewhat distorted. And why it's distorted is particularly from the use of the Visuddhimagga. Now, the Visuddhimagga is a, is a commentary written in the 5th century AD. That's a, a thousand years after the Buddha. And... It is a kind of the go-to manual for many Theravada monks who are interested in, especially in the meditation subjects. So it, it is often quoted as authoritative. And in, in many parts, it is very interesting and very good, but it's a very late commentary. And it can miss mislead you, especially in regard to breath meditation. 
by the time the Visuddhimagga comes up, the breath meditation is regarded as a as the the practice for the Buddha and al almost impossible to do. And very few people can do it. Very few amongst the monks can possibly do it, etc. Now, this is a new tone. It's, it's nowhere indicated in the suttas that it is of this degree of difficulty. So many books that you read out there are modeled on this idea. But if you go back, as I mentioned in the last talk, if you go back 500 years, you've come to the Vimuti Maga. And uh, this is closer to the time of the Buddha and would contain information from much earlier commentaries as well. And that is much more accessible, more humane, more accurate around breath meditation. So if you have to read one thing, perhaps find the Vimuti Maga. And it's available out there in paperback. It's about three, four hundred pages, perhaps. And there's a nice section on breath meditation, very brief. And aside from that, I would recommend that you read my essay called The Mystery of the Breath Nimitta. And it has a, a little subtitle called The Case of the Missing Simile. You may detect the flavor of Sherlock Holmes. And it's something I wrote more about oh, 25 years ago, maybe between 20 and 25 years ago, on this very issue of this something called the nimitta, the breath nimitta. It's, huh. you can just type it into Google and you'll, you'll eventually get to it. It's, it's floating around out there. So I cannot, I can't really, huh? What's that? I think that's on your website. Ah, it's on our website, yes. Birkin Forest Monastery. No. Birkin.ca. Birkin Under resources. Under resources. I have my backup crew here. I don't know any of these things. They know <laughs> everything. Yeah, so I, you know, read the suttas, maybe the Vimuti Maga. Uh, my essay, and listen to, I have a great idea, listen to six talks by Ajahn Sona on Ajahn Sona's YouTube channel on the jhanas. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question, Ajahn, is from Scott from Bend, Oregon. Um, Ajahn Sona, in the past you used the phrase unstimulated silence. What do you mean by this phrase? Is this the silence that arises with jhana? Yeah. Did I use that phrase, unstimulated silence? I think maybe uh, imperturbable silence or something like that, perhaps. That a silence which is not, cannot be disturbed. That you're fully and delightfully immersed in. Uh, there's different types of silence, right? There's an expectate, expect, uh, a silent expectation. There's a pregnant pause. There's a grim silence. <laughs> there's a golden silence. There's all kinds of interesting that something like silence 
could have so many interpretations, right? So the interpretation mm. that we're looking for is this is a beautiful silence, a silence which is uh, peaceful but joyful, that is something that is remote from disturbance, a refreshing silence, truly immersive silence. And so this is, people are not familiar with having silence described to them. They're familiar with every kind of sound and noise and these kind of things, but silence is a, is a different matter, just like space is. Architects sometimes talk about this, that it's, it's not the things in the architecture, it's the space in the, in the architecture. So there's different shapes of space, different kinds of space in the architecture. And so this is a, this is a kind of silence, a be beautiful architectural silence. So when you want to imagine we this... We have another oh, question. Yeah. Oh, go sorry ahead. about the delay, Ajahn. Go ahead. It's all right. It's time for me to be silent. Oh, well, there's, there was a related <laughs> question. Which is, uh, from Raphael, who's wondering if one can hear sounds in the first jhana. It seems like there's different opinions on the matter. I think so. Now, this is uh, one of those lovely medieval arguments that has gone on for several centuries. Can you hear sound in the first jhana? The thing is, just try to use your own experience of life. I mean, have you ever been absorbed in a book or absorbed looking out the window or something and somebody is at, telling you to come to dinner or something and you, you don't hear them? So there's an override system. When you're really paying attention to something, absorbed in it, it's very easy not to hear things. Uh, we have to be, our mind has to be selective about what sounds we hear. And if that apparatus is in place, if you're tr truly absorbed in a book, you don't hear sounds. Somebody later will, will say, did you hear that person shouting out in the streets? No, I didn't. I was deep in my novel. And so that's the kind of uh, interplay between attention and uh, sound. Now, if you're trying to read and you're not absorbed, then the sound is, a, is a, an annoyance, what we'd call a thorn to paying attention, isn't it? So it's when your attention is not fully absorbed, then sound is a problem. Now, is it that you can't hear at all or whether it's simply a matter of like high priority attention. This is the case for mothers when they're, when they're asleep and their baby is in the room or in the next room over. They sleep soundly through all kinds of snoring from their husband and all that kind of stuff. But then as soon as the baby makes a little sound, they hear it. They awake. So this is the, uh, we have finely tuned kind of uh, sound attention structures. The Buddha gives uh, a few examples of where he's in deep samadhi and a whole caravan rolls by, rattles by, 
with oxes and carts, and he doesn't hear it. Or a lightning, a thunderstorm happens, and he doesn't even hear it. He finds himself a little bit damp in the, when he comes out of it, but he has not heard any of the thunder and lightning. So it's if your attention is profound, then sound is uh, dismissed. And it's just a matter of degree. So, but uh, again, the, the second jhana is also called noble silence. So, and the silence they're really referring to there is inner silence, the sound of your own chit chat, you know, your own mind processing. It's gone silent. And so, it's not a matter of external noises at some point, it's the internal dialogue that ceases and, and so silence occurs. All of these six talks, you know, have been about trying to understand these jhanas from events and activities and processes of your mind in ordinary life. If you don't build bridges between your ordinary emotional and mental states, or it's like, say extraordinary emotional and mental states, uh, which ordinary people have sometimes, you can't understand what one is talking about with the jhanas. So always try to look for experiences in your life which would reveal some of these points about jhana. Okay, moving on, Ajahn, we have a question from Abby. After reaching sustained sukha for a time, then sloth and torpor arise, not aware it has entered. How not to fall into sloth and torpor at that point? Thank you. Well, at that point, it might be uh, a little late, actually. Now, the, when I give uh, retreats, both uh, mindfulness retreats, metta retreats, and also jhana retreats, I tell people, don't try to get into stillness immediately. You know, you often go to these these retreats, these 10-day retreats and so forth. Well, maybe, maybe some of you have never been to a 10-day retreat, but... It, this is a feature of the Buddhist world. Uh, it, ha it has no history from the suttas. There is, the Buddha never gave a 10-day retreat to lay people. <laughs> never. There's, there are no 10-day no retreats for lay people. <laughs> this is a modern invention. However, it's a good thing, though. It's not a, something to be dismissed. But this, So lay people are coming from all walks of life, and they come to the monastery. And then uh, usually there's this boot camp militaristic sort of thing, up at five and all day long meditating and strict silence. And wow, that's quite a shift. And somehow this is thought to be the envelope for, for these kind of retreats. But I don't do it that way. I What happens is that people, what they really need at first is to get enough sleep so they're not fatigued. So you need to have a reasonable amount of refreshment from sleep. And then secondly, to practice more about joy at first, joy and energy. So joy and energy are the first features. They come before serenity. And the reason why is that you, you need to be fully awake. If you try to go to serenity too quickly, you will just get sleepy and fall asleep. You can't get to serenity except through joy and energy. So this, uh, my, uh, my metaphor for this is uh, that when you go bicycling, you have to sometimes uh, pedal up a hill. 
and you make it's a joyful experience you're out in the lovely fresh air and you're getting some exercise and you can pedal all the way to the top of the hill and then of course you can now go down the hill coasting you don't have to pedal so this is the relationship between energy joy and serenity so the first part is pedaling up the hill which is joyful exertion and then the second part is to now coast and the coasting is the serenity and if uh, you you come onto the flats then you'll have to start pedaling again so this is the priority is make yourself awake have enough sleep splash water on your face go outside get some light in your eyes think joyful thoughts etc and then see if you're ready for serenity okay next question a little bit different track here ajahn is it okay that i'm not very interested in the jhanas and just want to work on becoming more peaceful why is there so much fuss about the jhanas in the buddhist community ah uh, yeah fussing and fighting you know i just can't stay <laughs> gonna leave this city <laughs> got to get away <laughs> well <laughs> there is no fuss about jhana it's, it's hardly ever taught <laughs> in fact there's hardly <laughs> a mention of jhana in the entire buddhist world you just blundered on you fell in with the wrong crowd my dear <laughs> one of the few one of the few monks in the whole planet that even mentions the word jhana <laughs> And I just thought, well, why don't we mention it on, uh, make a whole series on it because it's, it's rather neglected. And I must say that jhana is, and as I point out, if you listen to those talks, you will hear, this is a rare investigation, this is a rare practice. Uh, most people don't have time or circumstances for it, but we're in a time where lay people, this is a restoration of the idea of jhana practice. We're in a time where lay people are more serious about practicing meditation. And it isn't like it used to be. People live longer and they raise their kids. And when they're 40 years old, they, are, they suddenly find their job, their task is over and they have another 40 years to live, 50 years. And they want to do something spiritual or creative with it. Then, you know, this is a, a full immersion kind of practice. Think about what people spend their time doing at extraordinary intensities. Playing music or buying sailboats or doing all these things that people do. This is a full-time uh, endeavor, very rich but demanding and so don't be under the impression if you're not if you're a, kind of new to the buddhist world especially the theravada buddhist world it, you're getting a, diff, a rather strange impression of it as focused on jhana but that is not the case a lot of a lot of meditation groups uh won't talk about jhana at all in fact they'll they have a, a bias away from jhana so this is, uh, you must get it in context here. But there is a small and uh, devoted kind of group out there in the world that would like to 
explore these deeper meditations. And it's, it's just, of course, it's just voluntary. Most lay people, it's not at all expected that one will practice the jhana. But if one does, it's possible it could be very rewarding. So, yes, you can just be peaceful. And I, I highly recommend that you are just peaceful. <laughs> uh, but for those who want to endeavor farther along in the path, then I give the full explanation of jhana, which is normally being very esoteric information, hard to find, hard to understand, hard to find teachings on, hard to find circumstances for, hard to find teachers to encourage it. This is why I do it. Okay, Ajahn, the next question comes from Eva. Ajahn, after strong joy, I lose connection to the breath. Going back to the breath feels like I'm pushing my hand into a glass of water and the water pushes back. Direction, please. Right, so you're on the edge of, like, uh, joy is a preliminary experience and uh, you are in the first room of the cave. You have gone into the cave. Now the cave, outside the cave is the noisy world. And then you find this beautiful, cool cave. And of course, it's 100 degrees out there, noisy, sweaty, frivolous. And you have found your way to this cave, which you found. And you go into the first part of the cave, first room of the cave, and it's just beautiful and there's cool and everything. And it's, you enjoy it. Now, there's still light coming in. There's still a bit of sound drifting in from the world as well. You're very close to the mouth of the cave. So there are further rooms in the cave, and uh, lots of people don't go further into the cave. They're just not, they just don't want to, ex they think that's it. But there are, there are four more rooms in the cave, and each one gets progressively farther and farther away from the mouth of the cave, farther and farther away from the heat and the sound and the noise of the world. So it's a matter of being curious about this and also a matter of instead of clinging to the joy, experiencing the joy as kind of, well, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful energy, but it's still rather energetic. You notice in, in classical music compositions, quite often the first movement is uh, at least uh, allegro or moderato or something like this, pulls the audience in and everything. And only after the first movement is finished, then they, they usually do a slow movement, largo or andante. There's kind of a, the audience is ready for more serenity. And, uh, but not every, not every audience. And that's why sometimes performers only play the first movement they their audience isn't ready and if they go to the second movement some philistine from the audience shouts rock and roll <laughs> they don't want it to slow down so you got to you got to refine your own taste your your taste for the slow movement the serenity the spacious movement has to 
you have to find yourself longing for that and then you will go there all right okay very good um the next question ajahn is from trevor ajahn sona thank you so much for your clarity of your discussions on the subject of the nimitta it has helped me immensely could you please discuss how to sustain and deepen jhana uh, yes, well, first of all, it's the preliminary causes which allow this to happen. You can't just suddenly go into jhana. It's like you don't suddenly play advanced music if you haven't done the preliminaries. You've got to do all your scales and develop towards it. So, or any 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 kind of craft or skill and this is why the buddha uses similes like the the turner or his apprentice or the the carpenter or even sometimes acrobats so he gives a simile of acrobats who perform in in the town and they do a, a an act with a bamboo pole and one of them goes up and does a headstand on top of the bamboo pole on the shoulders of another so th these are demanding attention exercises and you have to practice the preliminaries you can't do it without hurting yourself so jhana is a kind of a natural occurrence if the preliminaries have been set up so for one who has virtue uh, virtue leads to a sense of ease of conscience and then one who has mindfulness one who has cultivates mindfulness and proper mindfulness. So what is proper mindfulness? This is badly explained and there's a nine part series that I have recorded on mindfulness. Mostly that mindfulness is usually misunderstood and mispracticed. It's, it's really a very selective, it's very, it's highly informed mindfulness, which reduces the amount of unwholesome emotional experience and, and increases the amount of wholesome mental and emotional experience. And if this is cultivated and developed, then it naturally flows into the jhana. You do not have to try. The Buddha says, for if you cultivate mindfulness properly, you don't have to wish for jhana. Jhana naturally rises and swells out of that. And he gives this simile, which is given in the earlier, I think it's in the earlier jhanas, of um, rain falling on the mountain, turning into rivulets, turning into streams, collecting into rivers, and then falling and flowing into the ocean. And so it's a natural process. It's like gravity. The jhana arrives when the preconditions have been set up. And the preconditions are straighten out your life, become absorbed in virtue, practice generosity, associate with the wise, especially those who cultivate samadhi. So uh, it, it, there's a kind of a, an inductive quality to the personalities that you associate with. If you are in association with people who are very focused and concentrated and serene then 
you'll pick that up and you'll move towards the jhana. And then good information so that you, you're not in doubt when you're in the midst of your attempt to uh, go into the jhanas, then you're not in a state of doubt and uh, uncertainty. So that get, it, get the instructions very, very clear. But this is why I make all these talks, you know, and why I record them. And we, we go to great lengths to do this. So we have, first of all, we've explained the Eightfold Path in, the, in, our, in our videos. And then we, we concentrate on the last three factors of the path, right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi. And there's something like, I think I gave nine talks on right effort, nine talks on right mindfulness, and six talks on samadhi. So if you take those 24 talks and listen to them 24 times, <laughs> that's about as good as you can get. <laughs> okay, well, for the next question, Ajahn, um, it refers to this um, graphic that was in the last talk. So this is from Zuri. Um, this icon of the lines circling the moon, very powerful. It reminded me of a talk of Lungta Mahabua where he talked about mindfulness circling objects out on alms round. Is it like this? So, well, it's more that his description sounds more like the earlier talk, the previous one, uh, number five, I think, with the bee circling the flower. And that is Vitaka, uh, the first factor of the first jhana is Vitaka, which is attention directed towards an object. So the bee circles around the flower. He's found the flower and he's circling around it, sort of assessing whether it's the right thing and he's looking for a way in. So that's Vitaka. And then he lands on the flower and that's Vichara. So the mind circles the subject of attention and then finally lands on the subject of attention. That's Vitaka and Vichara. In the case, by the way, of the um, breath, there's not much to... Vitaka is not really thinking. It's just bringing the mind to the subject of the breath. And then, then it lands in the subject. By the way, the first jhana in the suttas has these two characteristics, Vitaka and vichara, applied and sustained attention, and sometimes thought. If it's a discursive theme, like the parts of the body or loving kindness, it sometimes uses imagery and so forth. With the breath, there's nothing to imagine. So in the other, other commentaries, like the Abhidhamma, they actually divide these two into separate jhanas. There's the first jhana is has vitaka and piti, sukha, ekagata. The second jhana has vichara, piti, sukha, ekagata. They call it, these are two different jhanas. 
because you can obviously see that the mind's doing two different things there. It's either circling the flower or landing on the flower. And these are two different states of mind. But the Buddha, just for the sake of simplicity, he just puts them both into the first jhana. And your mind is circling and landing, circling and landing. So this is the, the circling, the circling, the, the circling around, and then isolating. So the circle, you put the spotlight on something, right? The spotlight searches around. You see this in a theater where the spotlight pans over the audience and finally finds the, the performer, and then it stays on the performer. And that's, we, we kind of were influenced by that idea of that spotlight, you know? Okay, the next question, Ajahn, comes from Misa from Prague. And he actually asked this last time, but I thought it might go well here with the discussion of mindfulness. Um, I asked last time about Bhavanga. Could Tanajan say a bit about that? Well, actually, I'd rather not, but... Uh... <laughs> Bhavanga is just a, <laughs> a sort of a sophisticated Abhidhamma term. Bhava means being, and Anga means it's like a factor. So the Bojangas, the Bojangas are factors of enlightenment. Bhavanga is the factor of existence or being. And that's what carries you through when you're in dreamless sleep or you're unconscious. Bhavanga is still there and it connects. It's purely theoretical. There's, there, what they say is that there has to be something, a stream of continuity in your being which connects things when you're, when you're not fully conscious and so forth. There's always some underlying stream of being and existence in you but that's not really all that important for this uh for the talks on uh samadhi and jhana yeah I just, i'd rather just talk about the jhana for now yeah i don't believe it comes up in the suttas at all do you know ajahn no i don't think so i think it's a uh, it's primarily abhidhamma it abhidhamma is very interesting but it's mm -hmm. not probably not necessary to our basic uh, to get on with the 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 practice it's a it's for intellectual monks maybe a pastime for intellectual monks <laughs> professional monks um okay well here's a little more broad question from helen tang anapanas anapasana she says prerequisite, but I think she means anapanasati, prerequisite to right mindfulness practice. Can samadhi and vipassana be practiced at the same time? Worldly activities give more conditions for the latter. Yeah, definitely. Uh, samadhi is not practiced in the midst of the turmoil of life. Um, it really requires pretty refined uh, kind of conditions. The, the posture for it is, is always given, like Anapanasati, the posture is always given as sitting under in a, in a quiet place, perhaps at the foot of a tree, the 
the, the spine is held upright, etc. So it's it's very always described in association with his posture and his solitude. So now there's hopefully one carries one's mindfulness around with you, and the best information for that is in right effort. What should you be doing all the live long day while you're having to negotiate, navigate through ordinary life? You should be practicing right effort. And mindfulness has to be at the service of right effort. It has to be always watching your reactions to the events around you and react. And so it's watching both outwards and inwards. Outwards is basically this word sampajanya, and inwards is this uh, sati. And you have to be looking at the outer world and the inner world at, at the same time, basically. And that, what I mean by this is like, even when you're having a conversation with somebody, uh, some people are, all they do is, they're unconscious of themselves. They're unconscious of their own motivations and, and emotions while they're in a conversation. They're only paying attention. So you actually have to, once you become a meditator and a practicing mindfulness, you actually are a spectator of yourself as well as the other person while you're in a conversation. This is much heightened. This is the sense of having a sense of objective evaluation of your own emotional activities in the midst of conversations. You're aware of yourself as well as the other person. These are the kind of things that work and in, develop your practice in the midst of uh, the ordinary events of life. Remember, I'm, I'm emphasizing this idea of jhana is, is for those who are really highly motivated. If you want to do this, and by the way, nobody says you have to do this. <laughs> if you want to do this jhana, <laughs> this is special practice. This is your, you know, amateurs climb Mount Everest. It's not all professionals. It used to be. The first guy that climbed it was, you know, it had to be this outstanding professional mountain climber. Now, all kinds of people climb Everest uh, and they make it to the top. So this is the kind of thing. There are more lay people with more time and more interest and who are devoted to meditation. And now is the time to introduce them to much more in-depth practice possibilities because they may wish to take it up. Yeah. Okay. Simple question here, Ajahn. Thank goodness. From Chevy in Portland. <laughs> Lumpur, can you give the name of the sutta you mentioned about Anapanasati Samadhi? In the con connected sayings, the Samyutta Nikaya, 54, 4 to 7 to to the end. <laughs> Yeah. Sounds like you're giving lottery number. Can you say that again? <laughs> It'll work there too. Yeah. Try that as a lottery number. Uh, yeah. You will find in the Wisdom Publications, Bhikkhu Bodhi translation, 
Samyutta Nikaya, Volume 2, the Anapanasati Samyutta, which uh, in the preliminary notes, he, he notes that from 7 to whatever it is, 24 or 30, 7 to the end of the section is really uh, the focus on Anapanasati Samadhi. And uh, it is the emphasis on the samadhi elements of Anapanasati Sutta. So these things are, you see, there's been a, a spin with this Anapanasati Sutta. Sati being the, the word that's been prioritized. But at least half of the Sutta, the middle, the stanza two and three are really preoccupied with samadhi. And of course, sati and samadhi are the seventh and eighth factors of the path. The, the last tetrad of the Anapanasati Samadhi Sutta is really to do with this wisdom, which is quite often used, the word vipassana is quite often used as a synonym for wisdom, but it really isn't properly used that way. You don't do vipassana. You don't do seeing. You see. <laughs> so vipassana is to see clearly, and samadhi is to be invested with steadiness. Steady, sustained, investigation, with clear perspicuity, <laughs> which results in wisdom. Vipassana is a mere, it's like your eyeglasses. You don't do eyeglasses, you, you see through your eyeglasses. So they're just enhanced, Vipassana is an enhanced seeing. So you get a whole, this kind of use of the word Vipassana as a, as a method of meditation. You don't see it as a method. Mindfulness where, where in the Eightfold Path is Vipassana? It's not there. It's, it's, it's Sati, actually. Sati Samadhi is what you do. And you get Vipassana. You get clear. You get clear sight. Okay, well, here's a question that relates to that, Ajahn, yeah. from Abby. A question about what Ajahn Sona said about the Mahasi method. Uh, as being designated not to, or excuse me, designed not to get into samadhi. I don't know if I got that right. Could you explain? Yes, the this is part of the Satipatthana Wars. Uh, <laughs> you have to understand a little history. So the Burmese uh, Vipassana movement was developed, I, I believe it was the request of a Burmese king that meditation be made more available to the lay community. There are various phases of Buddhist history where it's believed that only monks meditate. Lay people don't meditate. They, they practice sila and uh, generosity. Dana and sila is what lay people try to do, but they don't have time for meditation. So there was a new... And this goes in and out of style in various times in Buddhist history. Sometimes there's the, the lay people are meditating and attaining enlightenment, attaining jhanas, etc. 
And sometimes it's thought, oh, no, no, that's not what you guys do. Only monks do that. So the Burmese senior monks were asked to do the, to teach them. So they developed these 10-day courses or 30-day courses or two-week courses. And they were, remember, this is in Burma, which is a saturated Buddhist country. And this was done probably in the 19th century. It's not that old. It's just, just I don't know, 150 years back, 120 years back, a little over a century or so. Um, and the Burmese were a devoted uh, and born into a Buddhist culture. And they absolutely trusted the Buddha and the monks and so forth. And they had, it was pre-media type and so forth. So the courses and these expectations these monks put on these people are suitable for that time and that place. And they decided that the period of time that these people had was not adequate for developing samadhi, the jhanas, or deep samadhi. And so they needed to just stay with this emphasis on, on anicca and insight practices primarily mindfulness-type practices. And so they would do this, and they developed systems for that. And they would discourage people from thinking that the samadhi was why they were there. They're not there for samadhi. And so the, the rise and fall of the abdomen is a moving, continuously changing, moving kind of focus. And it's not designed for entry into jhana and so forth. So eventually, Sri Lankan monks or perhaps Thai monks asked, well, where did this idea of the, the, the rise and fall of the abdomen is the focus on of your mindfulness? Where's that? That's not in the commentary. That's not in the suttas, and it's not in the commentaries. Where did that come from? And so, and, and that's a disturbance to samadhi. And so I think it was Mahasi Sayadaw said, well, it was never meant to for samadhi. It's meant not to be in samadhi. It's meant to stay with change and impermanence so this is where the this uh, arguments over this adaptation of breath meditation to this particular technique of rise and fall of the abdomen came from so i think every i think everybody was operating out of goodwill there and uh they were just asking questions and uh mahasi Sayadaw, was attempting to develop a, a system that was appropriate to the lay people of the time. And this has then spread out because uh, in Sri Lanka, you couldn't do a course on meditation. You couldn't do a Vipassana course. There was, monks didn't do that. And it was also in Thailand almost unknown for monks to give courses uh, of meditation for the lay people. So it kind of spread out from Burma. And so the influences on the Western teachers of our present tradition were primarily through that, including the Gwenka structure that came from Burma and many of these Vipassana courses and including some of the, some of the teachers from, from IMS and Spirit Rock, etc., were influenced by that, the Burmese course structures, etc., so this is the history of why this takes place. Uh, it's good to have a context for this, but it's 
I'll probably do a whole talk on this uh, sometime. It would take an hour of sorting through the history of why this all occurred and so forth. But I just thought I'd inform you, like, why there's a particular tendency for so-called Vipassana courses and why you never hear about jhana, etc. So it's part of history and it's part of the cultures, etc. Okay, Ajahn, the next question is from Shira from Israel. In samadhi practice, we try to develop pleasure that is not dependent on the senses. The sensation of the breath is within the sense realm, so how does it serve our goal? Yes, it, it's established by touch. And then the touch turns into the nimitta. The nimitta is the mind made after impression of the touch of air. And the airiness, this quality of buoyant, cool, refreshing air pervades the, the body, the, the head first, inside your head, you, you become a, an airhead. <laughs> and uh, uh, this is purely psychological. Uh, this, is, this is the intent, is to take you into a psychological realm. And the pleasure is not, as I mentioned before, there's nothing special about the breath or the air. That's one of the reasons why they use it. It's a neutral object. It has neither, it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's just a place to put your mind. The joy arises from the focus of the mind, the uh, rapturous attention. And it's a, on a very subtle, neutral object. So you're, uh, you're heightening your capacity to pay attention and attention, interest, and joy are virtually inseparable. Normally, people require a strong sensory object to pay attention. So you wait, the baby, you need a very bright kind of rattle or something, and you put it in front of their eyes, and it ca finally you catch their attention. And then they, they grab it. Of course, they put it in their mouth right off the bat. They... They crawl towards it. So you can see this, if you put something that is neutral, if you just put a pillowcase down or a sheet, they, they won't even notice it. Uh, now this, this is what happens with humans, uh, especially in modern times. At very young ages, children are watching television and I suppose computer screens now. And the object of the, the television program is to, is to capture your attention. And colors and explosions and loud sounds and music. And these are very easy to capture human attention with. But because you, you now become dependent on very strong stimulus to catch your attention, this weakens your capacity to pay attention. And so you feel bored, restless, and even in despair when you're not being assaulted by very strong sensory stimulus. So notice people, like children, if you take their television away, they do not know what to do. They are just lost. In the time before strong media, the children are used to a low sensory environment. So they're playing with a stick, you know, or a rock or a 
bunch of mud or wandering around, their, their attention is not so calloused. It, they're still sensitive. They can be in a low sensory environment and still be happy. So we do some, we sabotage ourselves by continuously exposing ourselves to strong sensory stimulus. We sabotage our own ability to be at ease when it's taken away from us. So this is the training of the mind and very few people want to do it. They, you've got to deprive yourself of strong stimulus. But your mind has to sit on something. And so we take the breath. It's one of the lowest sensory experiences you can have. The simply experience of breath or the air coming through your nose. It's such a low, a low sensory experience. And you have to, with all your might, you have to strain to pay attention to it. But now you're strengthening your mind, strengthening your capacity to be happy in the midst of low sensory experiences. So when you work with the breath, actually you'll find out that you don't really need high sensory stimulus anymore. That's the beginning of both liberation and trouble. <laughs> you are now no longer want to be in the midst of the party. You find what people, the, the excessive overkill of the sensory world that people live in is too much. You gravitate to the margins. You go to the quiet places. You go to nature. You just want a little patch of grass in the middle of the forest. That's all you want. And you want to stay there longer and longer and longer. This is the why we do this. And it's, yes, the breath is contacted by the sense of touch, but then it becomes a mind-made object. It's just a means to an end. Whereas the sensory world is the end in itself. So would you say, Ajahn, you're leaving the realm of the five senses and moving into the realm of mind only? Yes, you're, um, you're withdrawing like the tor tortoise withdraws its limbs into the shell. You're withdrawing from the, the, the five external senses and you're exclusively into the internal sense of the mind. But even that, so uh, scholars do it all the time. They, they like to be alone in a room with their books. But now the Buddha wants to take your books away as well. And sometimes scholars <laughs> are surprised. They think, ah, I, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of like a monk. But I want to take your books away too. <laughs> then see if you can be happy alone. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, it is um, nine o'clock, Ajahn, so we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time and, uh, and for this series of talks. It's, uh, it's a wonderful kind of gift to everyone, and it completes the set, we might say. Yes. So, yeah, we have the right effort, the right mindfulness, and the right samadhi talks now on your channel, and beautifully done. So thank you and uh, your team of stewards there at Birkin have produced that. Yeah. And, uh, and also for coming on and answering these questions. Okay, so, you're all most welcome. And um, stay tuned for future tea times and coffee times with uh, Jen Sudanto. 
and perhaps mm. further videos as well from our end. Thank you. There was a suggestion that maybe you could give a talk sometime on right humor, Rajan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, now we're we are actually considering branching out into more diverse topics like this. Comments on the social structures of the world and various how a Buddhist in the modern world perceives certain things and navigates through certain things, and and of course, maybe something like humor as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank you for your time, Ajahn. And okay. um, I'd like to have you back on sometime. So thank you so much. Have a good morning. Okay. So, and thank you all. And we'll be back tomorrow for regular kind of morning coffee time. Um, absent Ajahn Sona, but with me. So please join me for that. And um, till then, have a good day. Bye, friends.